Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril here with my co host, Pastor Elliot Anderson. And Love and Life is your place to hear conversations grounded in psych research, psychotherapy, and biblical truth to help us thrive in love and life. We are continuing our series on woundedness because life is long and we get hurt. And the cliche goes, but it's so true, hurt people hurt people. So we are hurt by other people who have been wounded and we can also unintentionally hurt others by our own woundedness. Today we're gonna talk about a dicey topic and I'm gonna throw it out here to Pastor Elliot that I think most people in our modern culture, and I would say almost all women in our modern culture have this woundedness. And today we're talking about the sexual wound. Elliot, I know you've got a lot of thoughts based on all your work with couples and all your work with individuals, young people, and certainly marriages can be deeply and profoundly impacted by sexual woundedness of the partners. And we've got some notes for us to cover, but what do you say just off the bat to my assertion that in our modern culture with the rampant sexualization of humans in in across the board, in every realm, from the media to our entertainment to every time you turn around, there's some sexualized image of somebody. I assert that can have a wounded impact on us. What do you think about that? Great to be with you and talk about a topic that is dear and near to my heart. And I created lots of sexual wounds for my own life. So this is very poignant experientially as well, thankfully, many years ago. But I think you are correct. I think I would say at least 90% of the couples I work with, even if the uh, sexual issue is not a prominent presenting struggle, if we get into the conversation, get into power dynamics, get into hurt feelings and woundedness, it'll avail itself. And it's not just for those who've been promiscuous like I was and got themselves in, in difficult bonding experiences premaritally or having extramarital affairs. I didn't do that, but others who have, right? It's not just that. Sometimes the sexual woundedness is just within a relationship with a committed partner that you don't feel there's good sexual fulfillment. Uh, And that can be just as much wounding, even if you were completely pure and holy and righteous on your way into the marriage. So yes, this sexual wound can be dynamic. It can be powerful. It can be one of the primary foundational cracks or breaks in a relationship that can divide and separate and maybe even lead to permanent loss. Yeah, let's define a sexual wound as you have come to understand it from your work with couples and individuals in your sessions and your psychotherapy, because I think that'll help provide a framework. And then, of course, we'll start with that framework, but I know that we'll probably address it from many sides, because as you spoke to, there can be promiscuity, but there can also be that woman, and I hear about this a lot, having you and I growing up in the church, there can be those women who were taught sex is dirty, it's wrong. So then even when they get married and they are supposedly now free to enjoy the fullness of this gift of sex that God has designed for husband and wife, they still can't release themselves. They still feel shame. So there's so many angles to approach this. And because sex is so fundamental, I mean, it's it's the only reason that we're here. (laughs) Sex is part of the human condition. It's why we procreate. It's a profound drive. It's primal. And so there's so many avenues and so many ways to discuss it. But let's just start with What do you consider a sexual wound? I think anytime our sexuality is bringing us pain, hurt, shame, 
lack of harmony, lack of connection, lack of intimacy in our relationship with our partner, then it's a wound. So it is meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be a positive, a cement-like bond between partners. And whether that is being expressed with your partner or just your own issues with your own sexuality, not feeling whole and free and positive, I think that wound can be there. So that's a really generic definition, but I wanted to make it really broad before we got more specific on particular things that rise up. So you're basically saying if someone isn't having really great, free and open and intimate and deep, intense sexual connection in their partnership, we'll speak mostly to marriage coming from the Christian framework, but for those who aren't Christians, we want to, of course, open up this conversation to everyone. You're saying that there that's probably evidence of some sort of woundedness of, along the way. Yes, it doesn't necessarily directly associate to that primary sexual wound. But if the sexuality is not giving the freedom, the authenticity, the joy, then it's likely at least a secondary sexual wound. What I mean by that is couples can have great sex life together, and one of the partners can be really demeaning, really shaming, very verbally abusive. The physiological aspect of their sexual relationship can be really strong. But if you're not receiving the holistic, cherishing, affirming, appreciating, accepting all the things we talked about in other podcasts, then there could still be a sexual wound, even if the physicality of that is wonderful. Do you feel that most of your couples, I know this is over 30 years of seeing couples, do you feel most of them are aware of the sexual wound or is this something that tends to be uncovered as you are working with them? No, I think most of the time pretty aware. And part of that is the sexualized culture we live in, which promotes it so grandiosely and in ways that aren't even appropriate or make sense. But it's so much a part of our modern media and our modern TV and movies and what's shown this crazy level of hypersexuality that is broadcast, I think leads people to be insecure and self-conscious about it. And so compared to where I started in therapy when I was in the early 90s, it wouldn't be something brought up very regularly. I would have to dig for it a little bit or probe for it. Now it's so much more prevalent and people are very quick to bring it forward. It makes me sad because I do feel like so much innocence is lost, especially with the young people nowadays. They're seeing things on their phones when they're in third grade that, gosh, at least in our day, the boys had to steal their dad's Playboys and <laughs> go to the little fort they made in the back where they hid the cigarettes and they can see some Playboys, which, and I don't really know anything about porn because I try to stay away from such things. But from my understanding, there's a woman who's just written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And she talks about how demeaning porn is to women. And I guess there's now porn about strangling people and all kinds of things that just a child's innocence. What I'm getting at is I think that the woundedness is going to be hitting earlier and it's going to become much more a part, unfortunately, a more common part that you're going to see in the dynamics of couples. Yeah, I think we're already there. So you used to have to hunt for it. You used to have to really work hard to attain that type of sexualized imagery. Now it's in your face as early as you want it or as early as it accidentally gets revealed. And so when I've taught at schools, and whether those are high schools or middle schools or universities, I give the kind of glaring, purposely provocative statement that you can assume about 95% of the young men in a high school or college is already struggling with some level of addiction to sexual imagery, expression, masturbation, casual sex type of things. It's just so prominent now as a primary expression of life. And 
really the college students I work with often don't even see it as a wound or that it's creating those wounds until we start talking about it. And then, you know, I teach human sexuality here. And so when we start doing that and walking through that, and then this, holy cow, your eyes get open. You see the whole different framework, not only the theological framework of what sex is supposed to be, but just then the reality of how quickly it can wound and damage and hurt. And yet you and I both are strongly believing in redemption, strongly believing in healing and victory in this area. So we're not seriously bringing this cultural thing forward to make everyone feel worse or scared or fearful, just to be aware, to be wise, to recognize it's here. It's not, parents often ask me, when do I start talking to my child about sex? And it's really as soon as they show any interest or ask a question or look at something, you just got to start much faster and much earlier because it's coming, it's coming so fast and so strong from the world. Yeah. I think we're going to need to do an entire episode on just that, the uh, sexual addiction and pornography. And I think it'll be really interesting. I think a perfect balance of you from all the young men that you work with, again, coming up in this other generation that's different from ours. And to your point, in our day, they had to sneak into the back part of the video store with a black bag to bring that porno out. And people say porno anymore. I don't know. But it would be interesting just to hear from that perspective. And then to what, as a woman, and how pornography in particular has been painted by some feminists to be this very empowered choice that a woman makes. And I would always argue, I don't know how many women who are strippers and are pornographic actresses. I would assert as a developmental psychologist that a good number of them were sexually molested as children. Have to look at the stats on that. But I remember I did see something once that like 80% of the strippers in Vegas or even dancers in Vegas are high when they are working. (laughs) That tells you something. So you guys know that neither Elliot nor I have that ability to structure and sequence and We're just a bit more random than that. So we're always looking for ways to enhance our ability to plan and move through schedules, especially in the morning. And so we're really excited to have come across Magic Mind, which is a little shot you take. It's all natural ingredients. You take it with your morning caffeine and it enhances your caffeine. It reduces the time that your body takes to absorb the caffeine so you enjoy that cognitive boost for longer, and you don't have that post-caffeine crash that so many of us experience. Plus, the amount of caffeine that's contained in Magic Mind is gentle enough that you could take it in the afternoon when you get that mid-afternoon slump. So, and you know, we're holistic over here. So we love the natural piece and we love the stepping away from pharmaceutical interventions, which tend to be really kind of shock your system in ways that natural ingredients like Magic Mind don't. Yeah, and we know from the research that caffeine is a significant problem if we're not careful with it. And to have this kind of product enhance your morning, weaken the impact in its severity so that you don't have those crashes. Yep. And holistically, you're prepared the rest of the day to be much more effective and functioning. Yeah. Magic Mind includes matcha, which, like we said, has way less caffeine than coffee, but also has additional compounds. And they extend the benefits of that caffeine in your system by slowing your body's ability to absorb it. Also, we hear from Tim's wife that lion's mane mushrooms are really helpful, especially for vegans. Hmm. And Magic Mind contains this lion's mane mushrooms. It reduces anxiety and inflammation, 
while also, again, supporting cognition by preventing neural degeneration and stimulating neural regeneration, which is so key as we start to explore more and understand neurotransmission and neurotransmitters. It's a wonderful substance and element for mind, body, and spirit. Oh, bringing it back to mind, body, and spirit. Thank you. So head over to magicmind.co slash love life, L-O-V-E-L-I-F-E. And if you choose the subscription option, you get 40% off with promo code love life 20, L-O-V-E-L-I-F-E two zero. Or you can opt for just trying it out and you'll get 20% off with that same code, L-O-V-E-L-I-F-E two zero. But let's look at some of what a sexual wound actually is. Like you said, you sent me some notes. And so you're talking about when our sexual self is not allowed to grow and develop and manifest in appropriate time and safety. And this could also happen because of, as we've spoken to a bit, sexual imagery, material stimulation too early in a child's development. You're saying before 14 would be a baseline. When initiated in sexual behavior, when someone has initiated in sexual behavior too early, you're saying about before 16. That sexual behavior was meant more in aspect of with another human being, not just self-stimulation or learning about their body or touch or even what we'd call like innocent masturbation habits that happen and form sometimes really early without Mm -hmm. them even totally knowing what's going on. Okay, we've got three more points here. When objectified, manipulated, controlled, coerced, assaulted, abused, raped, absolutely. When sexually intimate with many different partners or outside of a partnership. And then finally, when we create sexual bonds with non-committed partners or sexual bonds with non-relational things or images. So you're going to have a problem with the hookup culture, I'm guessing. Yes, I do. And my students know it. We talk all about it. What do you say to that when it is so prevalent? I even see, even at a Christian college like Judson, where you work, I don't see the levels of kids dating the way we dated. You would date someone for a couple of dates and then you would decide to be exclusive and then that was it. I see a lot of this just hanging out in groups, which in a way is fine to just have friendships with the opposite sex. Then I think, are these guys not motivated to date because they're all addicted to porn? Or then I also wonder if there's a hookup element that people don't want to get committed. And when I say people, I'm saying men because the hookup culture disproportionately benefits men who are probably less interested in having a steady relationship. I think everything you're saying is true and a part of it. And to help my students, when we're talking about hookup culture and why it's so dangerous, then I go back to not just the theological principles, but the psychological, biological principles that we know align together. God created and ordained sex to be monogamous within a marriage and a marriage only. And that is restrictive, and that's meant for our safety. It's meant for our purity, our holiness to keep us from woundedness, just like we tell our kids when they're learning how to drive, you have to wear your seatbelt. We're not doing that to be punitive or restrictive. We're saying, no, we want to save your life and keep it safe. And so hookup culture does everything backwards. You and I have talked a lot about pacing intimacy and the sexual fulfillment is supposed to be the culmination of the commitment of the partnership of the ordination of marriage. In this culture now, because of, I think, of the prevalent sexualized imagery and sensationalism and idolatry of sex, that's the primary way you know you're a man or know you're a woman by your ability to seduce or to attract or to consummate that sexuality. And so many people almost inadvertently do it as a first response of intimacy or connection. And it creates that backwards 
that backward formation of the bond of the relationship alters everything. Yes, hookup culture itself is dangerous just in the reality of who are you with, what do you know about them and all those things. But if you're really trying to build intimacy and find a girlfriend or boyfriend that you want to build some type of relationship with, you're creating a sexual wound instantly because that bond is made by the Lord. And it talks about in, in Genesis, the word cleave is used in Genesis 2, 25, 20, 24 and 25. And it talks about that cleaving is meant to be a, a super glue, a cement-like bond between man and wife. And so if you're just casually having sexual relationship, a sexual intercourse with someone you've just met or just a friend, you're like, hey, do you want to have sex? And I think it's just no big deal. We're not going to, you're not going to further date. We're not going to become a relationship. It's impossible. It is a big deal. Physiologically, it's automatically a big deal. The bond is created instantly, biologically, emotionally, spiritually, whether you believe in God or not, the spiritual connection is there immediately and it throws everything off. So you haven't even had a date yet, but you've already had sex. And so the bond's now created and it leads to all these attachment issues you and I have talked a lot about. I think it creates immediate anxious attachment. And yes, the masculine domination of maybe the desire for the hookup without the commitment, it doesn't, it's not like it creates worse issues for the female than the male. It damages both. He might think it's non-committal relationship. This is awesome. I can have sex with this girl and I don't have to date her or spend money on her or do anything else. And he thinks that's fine, but it's damaging him in the exact same way. And it's going to lessen his ability to bond and connect and be faithful down the road. When he says, oh, many of the guys tell me, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be completely faithful to my wife whenever I find that right one. And I'm like, what examples do you have of faithfulness now? I haven't said that doesn't automatically disappear. You don't create all these bonds and these styles of attachment and then, oh, get married and it's over. Same way think pornography. Guys are like, oh, I have all kinds of issues, porn and masturbation, but I know when I get married, that's going to all disappear. And I say, no, it won't. These are neurological connections in your brain now that are hardwired. And to eliminate that is really hard work. And you really ought to start now. So I know I answered a lot of variables there for you in one setting, but that's just a quick look at how damaging the hookup culture is emotionally, mentally, spiritually, sexually. Such a complex issue. And there's just a lot of nuance to it and a lot of angles to tackle. And when you talk about that, I think it's really important for a man to say to young men, of course, as a woman, I'm coming at it from seeing the women who are feeling like we talked about, they believe now they have anxious attachment. And I'm thinking, no, you just gave your body too soon. <laughs> you, there's no anxious attachment. It's just as soon as you do that, you're absolutely going to be like, is he going to call me? Did I lose respect in his eyes? And all these things sound so archaic and so old school, but they're just fundamentally how we are designed as human beings. And as you and, and I have and talked we, about. And really, we've never used this word before, I don't think, but we're creating sexual attachments and that creates automatic anxious or avoidant attachments because they're not in the proper order or not in the proper function. So yes, I agree with you completely. They don't truly have an anxious attachment because there's really no attachment. But that's what happens when you create that sexual bond. It now creates a attachment that's supposed to be a culmination of secure attachment. And now it's out there before. It's running down the street without the, without the horses to lead it. And so yes, you're going to feel anxiousness, even physiologically anxious, and you don't even know why. Yes. Totally, completely. You're going to have that physiological response. You're going to have the cognitive response with the intrusive thoughts and the ruminating and the, is this going anywhere? And it makes me sad because it's, it doesn't, as your, to your point, it doesn't serve anyone. But I think it most, again, as a woman, I see it as being more maybe initially detrimental. I think you're right for the men, perhaps later when they think, okay, now I'm going to be the stand up guy, the committed, loving, loyal, faithful partner I know I intended to be all along. But you know, 
I had to get mines along the way. <laughs> but he's probably going to see the woundedness later. I think the women see the woundedness and experience it right away. And and all the couples I work with, Karen, sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. Um, I'm not really sorry, but yeah, I saw you, you pause are. for a minute. I saw you pause for a minute, so I jumped in. <laughs> but all the young couples I work with, because you know, I do a ton of work with younger couples, and then I do work with crisis couples. So it is a weird variable. I don't have a lot of couples just like mentoring for growth and development. I have more of those lately, and that's fun. My point, however, is not about my system and my structure counseling. My point is about I've never had a premarital couple, and I've done at least 175 couples now, prepared them for marriage. I've never had any of them say, oh, our relationship started by a hookup. What I get all the time is I'm still dealing with these wounds from the hookup, even though my future spouse has forgiven me. I'm still feeling really guilt, a lot of shame about that. So there is this commonality that, well, this hookup's not that dangerous and I'm just getting sexual fulfillment. And maybe for a woman's perspective, she's saying, maybe if I give myself to him this way, maybe then he'll want to date me. And I've never had a couple tell me that's how it started. Now, I'm not saying it hasn't happened and people just didn't tell me. That's probably true. But I just think it's a good reflection again to recognize that it's not creating the kind of bond that sustains a relationship and prepares them appropriately for marriage. Yeah. And again, it as we've been speaking to, all that pacing gets completely out of whack. I remember even back when we were in college, my best friend from high school, and she we went to Christian school, she went to just regular school. And I remember her saying that on her campus, she would say, pacing was get drunk, have sex, and then try to figure out if you're going to be a couple. And she said something to me I'll never forget. She said, around here, on her college campus, it would be more emotionally like vulnerable to hold hands with someone than to have sex with someone. Absolutely. Yeah. Or to actually have a sit down date. <laughs> yeah. That's way more vulnerable than just, hey, let's go meet somewhere. And, and because it's become accepted now, right? It's become normalized enough that it's got its own name. Hookup culture right. says this is in our culture because we have a name for it. That's right. And, and it's affirmed and even at times appreciated. And I've had even godly young Folks talk to me about their seriousness about their faith in Jesus and at the same time say that, but I know I need to work on this hookup thing. I'm like, oh yeah, you definitely do because you can't say the same thing. And that's another whole issue as well. But if you're saying you're a committed Christian wanting to follow Christ, you can't just willingly and knowingly continue to do things like that or stealing or other things that we know break commandments, break principles of, of faith and scripture. And, and it's been so normalized that it's accepted. And again, that just creates automatic sexual woundedness coming into your marriage often from sexual things with each other, often from the past, often from the imagery and the addictions to pornography and all those other things that come with it. So it's all tied together and it's all a mess. Bringing back the male-female dynamic, I did a speech at a sorority at a Midwestern private college, not a Christian school, several years ago. And I was talking about the hookup culture because I had this guy named John Berger on my program who wrote a book called Datanomics. People can go way back to the first season to check that out. It looks just at like the numbers game. And it, it's relevant to what we're talking about. So I'll just give a little sidebar here. The gist of his understanding of what's going on, this guy was a money. He used to write for finance. He was a numbers guy. And so he's in New York City writing for Money Inc. or some, one of those magazines. And he's in his mid-30s, and all these guys are happily married, and all these beautiful, attractive, smart, super catches of women 
are single in their mid-30s. And he's like, what's going on here? So he starts looking at the numbers. And basically since the mid-80s or the late 80s, we're now graduating more women than men in college. So that means that more women and then men, the, the ratio of women to men on college campuses is no longer 50-50. In fact, it's more women. There are more women than men. What does that mean? Now we have changes in the ways that dating and mating behavior happen on college campuses by virtue of law of supply and demand. With more women out there, the guys are the ones who are able to change the rules. Now, interestingly enough, if you go to a tech school or a school that's still very math, science, and now I'm going to get canceled because, yes, men are still better at math and science by and large. If you go to these schools, you find that more traditional modes of dating are happening because the men can't play that game and the women aren't feeling forced to compete with other women by giving their bodies too easily in order to, like you said, maybe hope to snag a man. This is a very interesting conversation with John Berger. I bring it up here now to say this spills then over into the urban centers of where the college graduate people are going. They're assuming they're going to now be a young professional. They're going to meet someone who also has a college degree. That's just what they expect to have happen. But there are fewer men than women again. And so then what happens is, again, the men are able to set the rules essentially and to keep things more casual, get to the hookups. Bringing it back to the speech that I did at the sorority group, I was talking about all this, bringing all these numbers, bringing all this statistics, all this research. And these girls, which they'd asked me to speak on this, by the way, there was a lot of resistance. They were basically telling me, so we don't have a problem with hookup culture. We're fine with it. Basically telling me they were super okay with not being courted, with not being pursued, with not being respected, with not being cherished. They were totally fine with it. And what was my problem? Gen X or go home. And there has been, I don't have the research to claim it at the moment, but I know I read it. There is a more masculine energy to feminine sexuality over the last 10, 15 years. And I think that's an evidence of it right there. Yes. I also think our whole culture, not only is there a hookup culture, but there's a porn culture. And our whole culture knows, especially young people like a college university setting, knows how rampant porn is. And we know the numbers are growing for women involved with porn as well. And so that creates another whole foundational layer of comparative sexuality that is so shaming and self-worth damaging and young women assuming the guy she's dating is watching pornography and then automatically feeling incredibly self-conscious about her body. I had a young, this, I wish this wasn't a true story. I had a young couple in my office a week or so ago where the wife who's had a couple babies, beautiful woman, talked about how her husband just recently told her that if she looked like this when they were dating, she, he probably wouldn't have pursued her. And he wasn't wow. trying to be, he wasn't trying to be cruel. He's a good man. He's a good man. He loves her. He provides it, but he's been saturated in pornography culture for 15 years. He's on his way out. He's getting healthy. He's getting holy and he's having to rewire everything. And it's really tough, but it was such a valuable thing they shared with me because it just gave me an insight again about the things that happen. So how does she feel as a, a woman who's got two children, young children, and really his, I, his babies. She, his children. His babies that she carried for nine months and then went through yeah. labor. His so that ba- lens, and we talked about that lens, and he was certainly repentant and apologetic. I don't want you to think, not when he said it, obviously, but now yeah. as he's working hard to get accountable and get healthy and get whole and re- rewire. But he was talking about, I can't even fathom I would say that. And then I talked about that lens when your lens gets so saturated with this imagery and 
sexualized objectification, you really see then all women by these external measures as the primary worth and value for who they are. And it's just awful. Again, so many layers to this. But what's coming up for me as a woman is the sexual revolution did us no favors. Either no side. one. Either side of the gender, no. No one. Mm. And women who have fought and scrambled to be seen as something more than just a body, a sexualized, a sexual object. We are now way back to where we started. Yeah, and there's a whole movement. I don't know how much you follow this kind of stuff, but there's many female stand-up comics now that are doing their entire act and their whole popularities based on their extremely sexualized presentation of humor. And it's almost more masculine than men. And these aren't, I'm not saying these women aren't beautiful, wonderful women. I'm just saying, here's the context again, that it's just kind of reversed and shifted. And now we're finding this funny. And watched a little bit of it on HBO, especially the other day for like seven, eight minutes. I'm like, it just made me want to weep. I'm like, this isn't helping this. Yeah. Maybe there's some funniness to some of these just in pure jokes and semantics and how she set it up. And I'm like, this is just creating another whole cultural dynamic that's so damaging and hurtful. I wanted to call her up and can I help counsel you? I'm like, can I? <laughs> and she was blatantly sharing her own woundedness. She wasn't pretending she wasn't wounded. She was just turning it into very funny material in this context. Funny and tragic. Funny, like funny how, funny why, if you want you know, good fellas from your old 80s gang movies there. So yes, I think we've completely made the point at least that the sexual wound, as you stated earlier, it's prevalent, it's rampant, it's pretty much everywhere with everybody. So that's an overview of the broader themes. And I think, Ellie, this is a nice place to press pause. And then we will, in the next episode, we will share how a sexual wound can manifest through hyposexualization and hypersexualization and hyposexual response, hypersexual response. And then also, of course, we'll get to the healing, which is so important the hope, the belief, the knowledge that healing is possible. And you will share some more examples from the work you do with couples and the healing you have seen throughout the years. Sounds great. Let me uh, bless this one out. Lord, we talked about some heavy things here, Father, and we know sex is your gift given to a man and woman in a committed monogamous relationship. And Lord, it gets distorted and culture and society and experiences that can be extremely painful and damaging and hurtful and create Massive sexual wounds that impact our self-identity, our self-concept, our self-esteem, and our romantic partnerships. So pray for all of the listeners that they may respond, be encouraged, if they need to recognize wounding and identify that and pursue help and healing and forgiveness and grace so they can be complete holistically as men and women with their sexual identity as part of their life and as a blessing and affirmation of relationship. Amen. We want to thank you so much for listening and for joining us and being a part of the Love and Life family. If you haven't had the chance, please head over to loveandlifemedia.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter where we share what's going on in the Love and Life community. You will there be able to get your free Empowered Dating Playbook by me and Elliot's Empowered Marriage Playbook is coming. It's forthcoming. He's on spring break this week, so he's going to work hard on it. We want to make sure we have resources for you wherever you are in your love journey. 
As always, we appreciate you spending a portion of your day with us. It means so much. If you have just a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a few words of review, it helps others find the program and join the Love and Life family. We're here to help us all align our mind, body, and spirit for empowered relationships. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.